Malachi, Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this, and you will say, May the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Amen. The prophet Malachi lived in the period known as the Persian period. He lived during the time of the Persian Empire. And the date of his book is somewhere around 500 to 425 B.C. 500 to 425 B.C. That period encompasses as well the period of Haggai and Zechariah. And this is why Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are at the end of these prophets, the last of the three, because chronologically they were likely the last three of these small writing prophets. Also, a contemporary of Malachi would be Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So these six books entail what's known as the Persian period during the Persian Empire when the Persians, they conquered their predecessors and then the Persians, they conquered the Babylonians and then the Greeks conquered the Persians and after the Greeks, the Romans conquered the Greeks. And then we have the New Testament period in the period of the Roman Empire. Well, Malachi is famous for a few verses. A few significant verses. One is in our passage where it says in verses 2 and 3, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. It's famous not only for its presence here, but its presence in Romans 9.13, where the Apostle Paul cites this verse in order to prove that God loves one graciously. He loves his elect graciously and he hates the reprobate in his justice. Grace towards the elect, Jacob was one of them, and then hatred towards the reprobate, Esau was one of them, in reference to personal salvation. Not national election, as falsely interpreted, but personal salvation, personal redemption. Another verse that's very often cited in the book of Malachi comes from Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. 2.16, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. The treacherous husbands were divorcing their wives and marrying pagan wives, and Malachi confronts them on that. I hate divorce. Malachi 2.16. Another famous one is in chapter 3, verse 1. 3, 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This passage is quoted in a few places in the New Testament. Matthew 11.10 and 14, Mark 1, verse 2, Luke 7, 27. As well, Malachi chapter 3, chapter 3, verses 8 to 10, another famous passage. Will a man rob God? 3, 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until there is no more need. 
And then lastly, in chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 5, Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. The Lord, through Malachi, says he's going to send Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. This is a prediction of John the Baptist, according to Luke chapter 1, verse 17. Luke 1, 16 and 17, Matthew eleven fourteen, and Mark 9, 11 to 13. Malachi calls John the Baptist Elijah because he will come, as Luke says, Luke 1, 17, in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to remind the people of the fearless preaching on repentance for forgiveness of sins and faith in Christ that Elijah the prophet also preached. These are the most known familiar passages of the book of Malachi. There will be a couple of other ones, two or three more that you will recognize. But these, for the most part, entail the ones that people already know. Now, the prophet Malachi... He presents his oracles in a disputational format, a disputational format. That is, he's going to make an assertion. The people are going to object to that assertion. And then he's going to refute that objection. He's going to assert something. The people will refute it or object to it, like in our our passage, when Malachi says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, there's their objection. He makes the assertion, I have loved you, and then they say, how have you loved us? They cast doubt on the word of God. The moment the word of God is preached, then they refute it with their doubtful comments and objections. That's, and then he answers them and refutes them, known as a disputational format or method of presentation. This we find actually throughout the Bible. Uh, The most familiar place in the New Testament is in the book of Romans, where the apostle uses logic and argumentation. And when he does, he anticipates the objections of his readers and then refutes them. He does that throughout the book. And it's also known in other places of scripture. Okay. Malachi, Malachi 1, verse 1, verses 1 to 5, establish God's love for his elect and his hatred toward his reprobate. Love for the elect, hatred toward the reprobate. Verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. An oracle is a word is a word of, of a verbal statement. And here, the prophets have a tendency, some of them have a tendency to call their prophecies oracles or their books oracles because they were presented to the people for them to know what the word of the Lord was and is. It's also interesting that the word for oracle is the word for burden, to carry a load or a burden. And the prophets, they look at this in a sense. It, it doesn't explain in any one scripture how exactly it's meant, but it could mean it in one or both of these ways. One, it's a burden for the prophet because it's a heavy message. It's a serious and solemn message he has to preach. So it's a load on him. It's a burden on him that he has to unload on the people. And also, when the people receive it, especially the wicked, when the wicked receive that message or hear that message, it's a heavy burden on them, and they hate it. They reject it, they despise it, they retaliate in in words and in violence against the prophets. The oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel. Now, it is... Obvious from the prophets that their words are the words of the Lord, but he makes it clear 
that he's not speaking his own words, but he's speaking the words of the Lord. To Israel. The audience is in Scripture to those who are known as the covenant people, whether physically or spiritually, but firstly, physically speaking, the covenant. They are the ones who have the Bible. They are the ones who have the knowledge. They are the ones who have the prophets and the apostles. They are the first recipients. So in that sense, they are called Israel. They receive this word. But it doesn't mean that they are true Israel because only some of them truly believe the gospel, not all of them. Yet it's delivered to all of them because they are the chosen people to receive the message, at least initially, to receive the the oracle of the Lord. Malachi does not identify his pedigree, his parentage, his location or native place, nothing like that. He doesn't do that. And for that reason, some scholars have cast uh, cast doubt on him, but that's unnecessary because we have seen from these passages, especially chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, and chapter 4, verse 5, these two are quoted in the New Testament as being written by the prophet. And even chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 1, as it's quoted in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so that God would send his messenger before Christ appeared in his public ministry. So because of these, there has been no real legitimate dispute or excuse to avoid Malachi as a true prophet and included in the canon, even though his pedigree isn't here. Okay, now... The first oracle, or the first message, is in 2 to 5. The assertion, the declaration, I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, that statement is a marvelous statement. It's a statement that is a truthful statement. And it is the Lord who's speaking. It's not Malachi. It's not somebody's opinion. It's not even the prophet's human opinion. It is the, the word of the Lord. I have loved you. He makes the statement. Once the statement is made, it should be believed. The moment the statement is made, it should be believed. Yet, we see in verse 2, they don't believe it. They don't believe it. We should first notice as well that God declares his love for the people. I have loved you. This is in contrast to those false teachers who say the Old Testament does not preach love, it preaches hate, or preaches very little love. <clears throat> Contrary to them, Jeremiah 31.3, Jeremiah 31.3, the Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. I have loved you with an everlasting love and drawn you with loving kindness. Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43, verse 4, 43, 4. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in place in your place and other people's in exchange for your life. He says, you are precious, honored, and I love you, God says. And Isaiah lived in 700 BC. Jeremiah lived in 600 BC. Now Malachi lives in 500 BC. And his recipients, they know what Isaiah and Jeremiah have said. They also know the history of the nation. They also know from the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they know the history of the nation, starting from the patriarchs in Genesis through Moses. They all know that, and they know what Isaiah and Jeremiah say. So this should not have been a doubt at all. The question should not have been asked at all. So when the question is asked, 
It's asked in unbelief. It's asked in a spiteful way. It is asked because it's meant to beat it down and to reject it. That's why when Malachi says, but you say. It's true. God said it, and we just showed some proof of it. But you say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Did they forget all the patriarchs? Did they forget the exodus from Egypt? Did they forget the providence of God all this while? Or are they ungrateful? They know about it, but they have a heart of ingratitude. Ingratitude is an evil attitude. They are ungrateful, and therefore they don't say, yes, you're right and true, Malachi. They challenge it. How have you loved us? Then verse 2, Malachi's answer, by the word of the Lord, because he says, declares the Lord. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Is that a fact? No one can dispute that. We find that to be the case in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. We read from 19 to 26. 25, 19. We're going to go from no child and barrenness to a prayer to an oracle of God to Rebecca. And then they will be born and we're told about their age. The age of Isaac is mentioned. Okay, 2519 Genesis. Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. And afterward his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Jacob and Esau are twins. They are brothers. The firstborn is Esau. The secondborn is Jacob. And in this case, they were the only two children, Esau and Jacob. And in the case of the firstborn, it says he came forth red and was like a hairy garment. And Esau means hairy. Esau means hairy. Later, the nation will be called Edom, and Edom means red. The nation, if we keep our place here in Genesis 25, go to Genesis 36. Genesis 36. 36, verse 1. 36.1. Now, these are the records of the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau had two names, but the name Edom was mostly used for his descendants and the nation that came from Esau. It will say it again in verse 43, the last verse of 36, 36, 43. Chief Magdiel, Chief Iram, these are the chiefs of Edom, that is, Esau, the father of the Edomites, according to their habitations in the land of their possession. 
Well, Jacob, though he's second born, and though he is not usually, and the second born, they are not usually the ones that receive what's called primogenitor. Primogenitor, that means that in the book of Genesis and throughout the, the Old Testament, primacy was given to the firstborn in, in inheritance and in terms of the promises of God, the parents expected the firstborn to receive the promises of God, even the spiritual promises. But God shows in this example and other examples in Genesis that he doesn't work that way. Just because they are firstborn and they may receive certain earthly privileges because of that, it doesn't mean that they automatically have the spiritual privilege of being saved. It doesn't work that way. It's exemplified here because God told Rebekah that the older shall serve the younger, which means that Esau would be a servant or a slave to Jacob. Esau's existence was not merely his own existence, but he served in order to be subservient to Jacob in spiritual ways. That was the message given while they were in the womb. In the womb. Okay. No question, Esau was Jacob's brother. Declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. Yet I have loved Jacob. Did God love Jacob? Yes, because Jacob was saved. So God had to love him for Jacob to be saved. Esau was unsaved. And God had to hate him, as it says in verse 3, but I have hated Esau. He loved Jacob and saved him. He hated Esau and judged him, punished him as individuals. Okay, now first, we have to notice the verbs love and hate. Verse 2 says love, verse 3 says hate. Love for Jacob Hatred for Esau. Sometimes commentators will mitigate and alleviate the sting of love and hate. It's not so much love, but of hate. They they will say, I have hated Esau actually means I didn't love him as much as Jacob. I loved Jacob more than I loved Esau. Or loved Jacob, and basically liked Esau. But God doesn't ever hate individuals. He never hates persons. Therefore, it could not mean that he hated Esau, the person. The problem with this interpretation is Romans 9. Romans chapter 9, the apostle actually preaches against that interpretation. Even the New Testament has the verbs love and hate, and the apostle uses them. Romans 9, 10. Romans 9, 10 to 13. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or evil, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We recounted in our reading of Genesis 25, 19 to 26, that this is indeed the case, verses 10 And 11, verses 10 and 11, he summarizes what we just read in Genesis 25. And then he says, why it was that God declared it to Rebekah while the twins were in the womb. Why did he answer her prayer 
while the twins were in the womb and they were fighting. They were struggling in the womb. Why? It says here, in order... uh, They weren't yet born and had not done anything good or evil in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Genesis 25, 23. Then he confirms it with another prophet, Malachi, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3, he quotes. So these are his two Quotations. The apostle also uses the verbs love and hate. Love means love and hate means hate. If the verbs meant something else, the translations would have indicated that. However, both Hebrew and Greek lexicons don't render these as anything else but love and hate in these passages. And that's why the commentators should stick with it, even if it makes them feel uneasy for their flesh. It is what it's saying, love and hate. Furthermore, in this context, when we read verses 3 to 5, does it not indicate hatred? Does it not indicate hatred? If Esau's inheritance is for the jackals of the wilderness and a desolation. If Esau wants to rebuild his territory and God says, I will tear it down. If Esau's territory is called wicked in verse four and verse four, the people toward whom the the Lord is indignant forever. God is indignant, angry, righteous anger toward the people that is Esau's nation forever. Does that not describe hatred? It can't be describing less love, anything mild. It can't be that. It's hatred. Furthermore, we have Old and New Testament examples of God hating people. Yes, he hates sin, but he also hates unrepentant sinners. He hates those who are in sin. Psalm 5, Psalm 5, verses 4 to 6. Psalm 5, verse 4. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. He hates all who do iniquity, and he abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. To hate or to abhor are synonymous. Psalm 7 Psalm 7, 11. We will pick up at the end of that paragraph. Psalm 7, 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. God has indignation, anger, righteous anger or wrath every day as a righteous judge because he does not enjoy seeing his laws broken. Then, verse 12. What does he do with his indignation? Verse 12. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. That is, God will sharpen his sword against the unrepentant man. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pate. Righteous anger against the wicked. Psalm 11, 
Psalm 11, verses 4 to 6. 4 to 6. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyelids behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Well, what does he do with those hated by him? Upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. 11.6 is describing the lake of fire. The wicked, the ones that God hates, fire, brimstone, burning wind will be the portion of their cup. We already read a New Testament verse, Romans 9.13. There's also Titus 1.16. Titus 1.16 also speaks of God's hatred. Titus 1.16, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Disobedient, detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. To be detestable is to be hated, despised, loathed. Individuals, Jacob and Esau. Now, some have disputed that Malachi and the Apostle Paul, that they are dealing with individuals or persons. They have said, no, no, the Apostle Paul is actually treating nations. God chose the nation of Jacob or the nation of Israel, and he rejected the nation of Esau or the Edomites. He rejected Edom as a nation to receive his word and to receive the Christ. He rejected them for that reason, but he did not reject them in reference to personal salvation. Yet, in verse 3 it says, But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. What's happening there? Malachi is preaching that God not only loved Jacob the person, the patriarch, he also loved the nation by loving Jacob. Because the nation has a good godly example. Because the nation has the word of God. The nation has the covenants. They have what they need to know for their salvation in Christ. That's what he's saying in verse 2 about loving the nation, I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you, descendants of Jacob, just as I love Jacob. So Malachi is speaking of both the individual and the nation as objects of God's love. In the same way, in verse 3, Malachi is saying God hated the person Esau, the patriarch Esau, the father of the Edomites, He hated him as a person, but also he has hated Esau's descendants, both. The false interpretation says Malachi and Paul are only talking about the nations, not the individuals, when actually both Malachi and Paul understand this to be the person and the nation. The person and the nation. And the evidence of Esau, the nation, is certainly here too, because he says, hated Esau, and I have made his mountains, Esau's mountains, Esau's inheritance, a wilderness and a desolation. As well in verse five, uh, verse four, verse four says, though Edom says, Edom is the nation, the nation will say, we, there's the plural, We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they, plural, may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them, plural, 
the wicked territory, and the people, plural, the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. So it's hatred of both individual and nation, just as it was love of individual and nation. That means that the Apostle Paul correctly interpreted Malachi. He didn't distort it to prove predestination. He interpreted Malachi accurately. And that should remind us always, the apostolic interpretation of the Old Testament is always 100% accurate. It's perfect. No one should doubt it whenever the apostles interpret the Old Testament on any subject. It should be the final word if there's any doubt. But usually, if you read the Old Testament carefully in context and related verses within the Old Testament, you would come to the same conclusion as the apostles. But if that's a doubt, read the apostles and all doubt will be removed. All right, then verse 3. In verse 3, Esau as a nation, his inheritance was a rocky, mountainous wasteland. There wasn't much there. A rocky and mountainous wasteland southeast of the land of Canaan, bordering the land of Canaan, but southeast of the land of Canaan. It was that way naturally, but God is actually not only speaking of the natural habitat that Esau inherited, but he's also speaking of the foreign destruction that would come upon Esau. He's speaking of foreign armies, and likely this was by the Babylonians. The Babylonians eventually made their way to Edom, and this is what Edom says in verse 4. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down. Yes, the Babylonians have come, but some of us are still here. They didn't kill us all, and they didn't exile all of us, Some of us are still here. And what we're going to do, taking pride in their nation, but we will return and build up the ruins. We're going to restore our nation, though it was beaten down by the will of God through the Babylonians. Though that happened, he's saying, or they are saying, collectively as a nation saying, we will return and build up the ruins. Okay, that's their goal. That's on their mind. That's their agenda. Yeah, we, we lost, but we're going to win. Thus says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. Whenever you see hosts or hosts in the plural, it has reference to the armies of God. God has a military well-equipped, better than any human, earthly, national military in the world. God has a well-equipped military with all the power needed to carry out the will of God. That's why Malachi says this here, or the Lord says through Malachi, the Lord of hosts, to remind us of the immense power the Lord has to do what? Verse 4 continues, They may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. They may try it, but I'm going to ensure that they never succeed. And after they were destroyed in history, There was no nation of Edom after that. There's no nation Edom. Never again. Not today, not 2,000 years ago, but before the time of John the Baptist and and, and Christ and the apostles, Edom was destroyed in the time of the Babylonians. Not to ever be rebuilt or restored again. No dynasty, nothing. Yes, people would live there, but not the Edomite nation. And why so? Why is God so furious and indignant forever with them? He says so in verse 4. 
men will call them the wicked territory. Those who survive and those who observe and those who know the history of Edom will identify the Edomite people as wicked, the wicked territory. They got what they deserved. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, this he will also reap. Galatians 6, 7. The day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, so it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Obadiah 18. We're going to go back to Obadiah to show some evidence of verse 4 elsewhere. Further, it says, not only are they wicked, idolatrous and immoral people, but they are also the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. This also is speaking of their whole Condemnation. Condemnation of the nation. This is not merely saying God chose to send Christ through the nation of Israel. It's not talking about that. It's talking about their eternal destruction. That's why it says the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. God has eternal fury against the wicked people of Edom. Shall we turn to Jeremiah? We're going to see a parallel first in Jeremiah and later in Obadiah. Jeremiah chapter 49. Jeremiah 49 14. Jeremiah 49, 14 to 19. 14 says, I have heard a message from the Lord, and an envoy is sent among the nations, saying, Gather yourselves together and come up against her and rise up for battle. For behold, I have made you small among the nations, despised among men. As for the terror of you, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. O you who live in the clefts of the rock, who occupy the height of the hill, though you make your nest as high as an eagle's, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. And Edom will become an object of horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss at all its wounds. Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah with its neighbor, says the Lord, no one will live there, nor will a son of man reside in it. Behold, one will come up like a lion from the thickets of the Jordan against the perennially watered pasture. For in an instant I shall make him run away from it, and whoever is chosen I shall appoint over it. For who is like me, and who will summon me into court? And who then is the shepherd who can stand against me? This passage, starting in Jeremiah 49, verse 7, 7 to 22, takes up a condemnation against Edom, the nation. Jeremiah predicts this. Okay, then another place where we find similar words to Jeremiah is in the book of Obadiah. Obadiah, Obadiah, Chapter 1, verse 1. And a correction. I, I said Jeremiah 118. It's Jeremiah 115. Jeremiah 1, oh, sorry. Obadiah 115. Obadiah verse 15, when I said the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. Obadiah verse 15. Okay, chapter 1. There's only one, but verse 1. Obadiah verse 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, 
From there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Their pride, he says in verse 3, the arrogance of your heart, their pride swelled up and they thought because they live on lofty mountaintops that they were invincible. But God says, I will bring you down from there. You think you're high, but no, I'm going to bring you down from there. And why is it? Why is it? Well, verses 10 to 14 of Obadiah explain their exploitation of Judah. It says in verse 10, Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame, and you will be cut off forever. They exploited Judah. They exploited the people of Judah. They gloated over Judah's own punishment. And therefore God says, I will punish you and destroy you. And another place is the prophet Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel. This will be a bridge to our last verse in Malachi 1. It's a connection to verse 5. First, chapter 35, verse 1. We read 1 to 15. We'll read the chapter. This is also a prophecy against Edom. Now, also, another term for the nation is Mount Seir. Mount Seir. Because the mountain, the main mountain in Edom was called Seir, So Esau, Edom, Seir, or Mount Seir, these are the three names for the nation of Edom. 35 verse 1, Ezekiel. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir, and prophesy against it, and say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay waste your cities." and you will become a desolation. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you have had everlasting enmity and have delivered the sons of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of the punishment of the end. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will give you over to bloodshed, and bloodshed will pursue you. Since you have not hated bloodshed, therefore bloodshed will pursue you. And I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation, and I will cut off from it the one who passes through and returns, and I will fill its mountains with its slain. On your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines, those slain by the sword will fall. I will make you an everlasting desolation, and your cities will not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you have said, These two nations and these two lands will be mine. And we will possess them, although the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will deal with you according to your anger and according to your envy, which you showed because of your hatred against them. So I will make myself known among them when I judge you. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have heard all your revilings, which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are laid desolate, they are given to us for food. And you have spoken arrogantly against me and have multiplied your words against me. I have heard. Thus says the Lord God, as all the earth rejoices, I will make you a desolation. As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel, because it was desolate, so I will do to you. You will be a desolation, O Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it. Then they will know that I am the Lord. It's clear from this passage that Ezekiel, he details the sins of the nation. He explains their sins and their everlasting punishment, a well-deserved punishment. There's a curious phrase. It says, then you will know that I am the Lord, it says, People will know who God is truly when he judges. They don't truly know who he is 
when he withholds judgment. They have a better and fuller picture, a more definite and concrete, distinct picture of who God is when he punishes or judges people. And Malachi says the same. Malachi 1, verse 5. And your eyes will see this, and you will say, May the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. In Israel, God is magnified by the redemption of the remnant, but also by punishment of the wicked among them. In Israel. And then beyond the border of Israel, God is glorified in punishing the nations of the world, the wicked nations of the world, but also he is glorified when the remnant in the nations of the world repent also, repent and believe in the gospel. Here he's saying the faithful will understand this. The faithful will understand it and they will say, may the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. They will understand that all exists, all exists for the glory of God. That's why the scriptures declare the glory of God in redemption and the glory of God in judgment. He is glorified in both. That's why the glory of God is supreme. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Um, for, and then also Romans eleven thirty six. 36. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So then whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, let us do to the glory of God. And in Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. And the same with Malachi. Malachi understands the truth that his love or grace toward the elect and then his justice toward the reprobate both bring glory to him. So both must be understood. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.